How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, on the one hand, like... <laughs> Hand her the microphone. <laughs> so loud. She has things to say. And welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spinoffs. Hey, I'm Emily. I am a writer and classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. It's Sea of Monsters time. <laughs> We're going to be analyzing the Sea of Monsters today. But first, some things have happened since we recorded our first episode. Some very <laughs> exciting announcements. Um, I'm talking, of course, about um, Lin-Manuel Miranda being cast as Right. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I mean, that's fun. But, but, but for this podcast in particular, very exciting announcement. We're getting a new book. Yeah, Rick announced that he would be releasing a new Percy Jackson book set between the Heroes of Olympus and Trials of Apollo. And since we are a chronological podcast... We are going to do everything in our power to get to that book at the right moment in the series. Yeah, we crunch the numbers. And basically, if we post about every other week, the timing works out where we can actually hit the new book when it first comes out. It'll be very exciting. And give our first on the ground thoughts. <laughs> so we'll probably looking at the calendar finish Blood of Olympus either the week before or a couple weeks before the new book called the chalice of the gods if we're breaking this news to you <laughs> but uh yeah so we'll be on a bi-weekly schedule posting every other week so that we'll get to that book right when it 
comes out chronologically. Very exciting. And there's the new Nico book too. Right, which will come out when we're in like Son of Neptune time, maybe even earlier than that. It's really early. <laughs> we can't read it. I'm going to read it. I won't. <laughs> and um, another quick announcement that I want to put up here, since it's a bit of a schedule change. The next thing that we read on this podcast following the Sea of Monsters isn't going to be the Titan's Curse. It's going to be the Diary of Luke Castellan, if that's how you want to say his last name. Because <laughs> our original plan was to read it before The Last Olympian, but there are already so many short stories there. And since we're doing this bi-weekly, it would just be too much of a break between Battle of the Labyrinth and The Last Olympian to put it over there. Um, and I also think putting it right before the Titan's Curse is more dramatically interesting, considering we're about to get into the Thalia, Luke, Annabeth dynamic. Amazing. Okay, well, let's talk Sea of Monsters. So this book starts off a little more than a year after the events of the first chapter of The Lightning Thief. It's Percy's last day of seventh grade, and he starts us off mid-nightmare. Um, he's dreaming of Grover being chased through St. Augustine, Florida and into a wedding dress shop by Polyphemus. I was wondering if the idea of Grover being Penelope was one of the first ideas or one of the <laughs> last ideas he had in terms of the Odyssey parallel. Uh -huh. <laughs> I love that he like made it feel like an organic decision as opposed to like, oh, we're just replaying the myth. I mean... I don't know how much I'm going to talk about the history of the Odyssey and getting into it, but it's very episodic as a text. It, it was created and kind of not written down, but written at a point where no one would be able to read it. So it was uh, all just memorized by wandering poets and bards who would kind of go around from town to town and they'd only tell like a part of the story each night. Um, not even necessarily the whole story over the course of several nights. So that was kind of why it's written the way it's written. It's kind of in the spirit of the Odyssey, though, I think. This entire series, I think, is in the spirit of the Odyssey, actually, in that way. Just a mishmash of greatest hits. But I also kind of liked that they're not completely repeating everything, you know? It's like they're reassembling the jigsaw, but it's out of order. The piece, but like, with different pieces, I guess. No, a jigsaw's a bad metaphor. <laughs> oh, they're, they're weaving a quilt, and they're using the same colors, but in a different pattern. Okay. I was thinking like when you're following the guide on a Lego box, but then you're like, I'm just going to do this instead. <laughs> and you stop following the Lego box. <laughs> Which I enjoy, especially because I think, you know, that is kind of a theme we talked about last time was like the idea of replaying stories. Like, you know, how much of it is replaying the story for the sake of replaying the story, like using the story to help you win. And how much of it is just like, this is how you kill this monster and they stumbled into it, you know? Mm. But yeah, anyway, he wakes up from his dream. Um, and he is now in a new apartment, in a new neighborhood. Um, he's still uptown, but he's off the two train instead of the four train. Yeah, I know. So. I noticed that. I was like, hmm, moved. <laughs> he's going to a nice school in Tribeca. That he's going to a school like a... on Church Street in Tribeca. I was writing down <laughs> every single detail I got about where he was in New York this entire first couple chapters. But yeah, totally different vibe from the first school what I really noticed this time around is how Percy in the first chapter has really like transformed as a character. Like the, the difference in Percy is also very marked to me 
not that he's a very different person, but that I feel like he's kind of more embraced, like, being a hero. Like, I wrote down, like, he's really acting as, like, the defender of the weak. <laughs> like, he's a lot more kind of like, don't do that. That's wrong. You know? I mean, and he had that quality when he was defending Grover in the first book. He he did, but I feel like in this in this book, it's more self-assured. Like, he's kind of had the validation of, like, yes, yes I am a hero, and I should act as such. Which I appreciate. It's good character development from book one. I feel like he learned... It feels like he learned something from yeah, book one. you're right. It's less of an instinctual want to protect his friends and more of a... He's had experience doing this and knows that it's something that he's capable of now. Like, it's not all talk and impulse anymore. To me, I think... The biggest difference that I clocked was um, a level of hope. Mm-hmm. Like the way he moves through this first chapter compared to the way he moves through chapter one of uh, The Lightning Thief. It's, he looks to the future a lot more and has something to hold on to. Like with Gabe gone, he has a home to come back to and he's not in boarding school anymore. So he's able to see a lot more of his mom and he has camp and Annabeth now. Like, he has people and places that he can attach himself to now, whereas in the first book at the beginning, he had very little to moor himself to. So I think that's changed his outlook at the start of this book. But I think, bringing it back to what you said about him having also stepped into uh, the heroism that he learned that he had in book one, I yeah, I want to use that as a chance to introduce Tyson because that's who we see him defending throughout the second chapter and on and off throughout the rest of the book. Which, if uh, anyone hasn't read the books in a minute, uh, Tyson is uh, a friend of Percy's who he comes to find out is actually his half-brother, another son of Poseidon, um, and he's also a cyclops. Um, And Percy has a sort of rocky relationship with him because he spends a good portion of this book trying to reconcile having a monster as his closest blood relation. I enjoyed this journey for him over the book, like this arc. I thought like Tyson was a really interesting foil to introduce because I think right from the beginning, like right when this is skipping ahead a little bit, but not far, when Annabeth's talking about the Cyclops, she has an interesting um, quote that I wrote like half of down. Oh, the quote is... Their mistakes, Percy, children of nature, spirits, and gods. Well, one god in particular, usually, and they don't always come out right. No one wants them. They get tossed aside. They grow up wild on the streets. I don't know how this one found you, but he obviously likes you. Um, perfect description of Magnus Chase, if I ever saw one. <laughs> <laughs> or like Meg McCaffrey in particular. <laughs> but like that, the whole thing is like, they're mistakes. They're the children of the gods they don't want. And I'm sitting here thinking like, this is also a description of Percy. Yeah, or Annabeth herself when she ran away and was on the streets because her dad didn't want her. I just thought it was interesting, especially with the children of the big three, where they're really not supposed to have them. Like, he is truly a mistake. Like, Poseidon literally says to him at the end of Lightning Thief, like, I you wish you'd never been born. Like, looking at Tyson as, like, kind of the other side of Percy's coin, I think is really interesting throughout the book. And there's a few, like, pointed moments that I think is really are really cool to look at. And that's one of them. It's a good reminder that Percy is not so different from Tyson in this respect. Yeah, I think even beyond being a sort of literary foil for him, that comparison is part of why, when we get to camp in a little bit, why Percy doesn't like attaching himself to Tyson. Mm-hmm. Because... He knows that at camp, so much emphasis is put on 
the idea that the gods' children inherit traits from their parents and they share those traits with their siblings. And so now Percy being placed in a cabin with a monster, it's not just being Poseidon's son is embarrassing now, like he claims Mm -hmm. is the reason that he doesn't want Tyson around. I, I think it also draws lines between Percy and Tyson so that everyone around him is looking for the things that make Percy and Tyson the same. And Percy doesn't like that. <laughs> and there are similarities there. Like there's a, a certain level of compassion that they both have and um, the way that they're both smarter than most assume. Like a big one is the way that they will both charge into dangerous situations for the sake of a loved one. Like that is a flaw that they both share. And now there's both of their relationships with Poseidon since they're both mistakes and know that they're mistakes and have to reconcile that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true, though, as well. And I think a big theme that kind of comes through in this book um, also is like the abandonment side of I I mean, it definitely was there in Lightning Thief. But I feel like, you know, because we ended with the meeting with Poseidon, because that was kind of set up as like an expectation, it didn't feel as strong versus in this one, I really feel like, like the abandonment of the gods to their children is like a really big part of it. Mm hmm. With all of the Hermes and Luke stuff, and then the fact that Poseidon is so absent. Yeah. I feel like also I would describe the entire theme of this book as, like, two sides of the same coin. hmm Like, another example, you know, for moving along, right, so we get to camp after the Lestragonians try to kill us. It was interesting to me, the Mr. D Tantalus dynamic, because I was like, oh yeah, look at that, two sides of the same coin, because they're both also serving a punishment where for them i guess it's like considered to be on par with his really famous punishment in the underworld to have to you know take care of these children and also what's interesting is like mr d can't drink wine tantalus can't eat or drink anything like they both have tried to eat and drink stuff you can't yeah but I watching the two of them interact was interesting to me through um, this book as well. On the one hand, Mr. D clearly does not like him. At least by the end. He's kind of a reflection of his worst attributes. And I think by the end, it's like, no, I can't live with that. <laughs> I can't live with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Again, it's like two sides of the same coin sitting next to each other. And then I think for me also, what I really enjoy about Tyson as an addition to the series as a whole is that I feel like Tyson as a character does a really interesting job of also establishing that monsters are not always the enemies. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that with Tyson's role in this book. Specifically, I started thinking about it in the scene where Tyson and Percy are getting ready for bed and Percy tells Tyson that he's not a monster and Tyson says not to worry because he'll be a good monster. Because there's always a moment in these stories about fighting and killing monsters where we come to that like inevitable question of like, should we kill monsters just because they're monsters? Um, Mm -hmm. Have we considered the monster's perspective? And like what makes a monster a monster? Or what happens when a monster passes your morality test and becomes something that you can't Mm -hmm. harm? And so this scene where we see how black and white Percy's understanding of this is, and like he can't conceive of Tyson as a monster, because he's someone who he cares about (laughs) and is a child of the gods and just doesn't fit into that sort of it's like what you brought up in the last episode he can only harm monsters and so monsters have become a sort of 
almost less important subhuman species to Percy that he can kill without guilt. And Tyson's presence throughout this book forces Percy to confront that line that he's drawn between himself and monsters and see just how little there is separating them. Which is a line I don't think that we confront very often in this series, but it is confronted Mm. in this book because of Tyson. Yeah. And going back a bit uh, to bring it back to the idea of two sides of the same coin and realizing that the line between you and your enemy is not as clear as you thought. Um, I thought that could also apply to Clarice and Percy in this book. I loved Clarice in this book. Clarice, Clarice is, I think I've told you before, Clarice is one of my favorite, favorite characters from this series. I love her mm-hmm. so much. And this is her book to me. Yeah. <laughs> this is hers is and her Ambet's book. book. It's her quest. It's her quest. It's, this is why I say that it's Clarice and Percy as two sides of the same coin. Because we get to see a lot of the same plot points or character moments that we got from Percy, but this time through Clarice. So this time it's Clarice on her quest or Clarice and her relationship with her dad or Clarice combating her anger or dealing with her own prophecy. And a lot of these experiences are things that we've only gotten to see from Percy's perspective at this point. Mm. So throughout this book, we get to see Clarice go through her own version of the story that we were told in the first book. And so get to see her experience those milestones in her story as a counterpoint to what we saw Percy go through. And so we're sort of forced to compare and contrast the way that she reacts to them versus the way that Percy reacted to them. Mm. And also, I, well, actually, (laughs) first of all, before we get too deep into this, I'm realizing in case anyone hasn't read the books in a minute, Clarice is the daughter of Ares. Yeah, I was actually just thinking, yeah. And she is a year or two older than Percy, and she spent basically the entirety of her screen time in book one bullying Percy. <laughs> no redeeming qualities, just no. an older camper with a grudge. <laughs> but here, our first look at her is as a hero, who it's, it's yep. her and her fellow warriors defending the camp. Um, yes. And I love the way that that sets up her arc for this book, just like immediately setting what we know about her like off kilter. Like she's still sort of in her element, like fighting and insulting people, but but fighting on Percy's side and protecting something that Percy cares about. There's that moment that comes after the fight when uh, she comes after Percy for interfering and then Annabeth stops her by saying like, Clarice, you have wounded campers. And she like immediately changes her demeanor yeah. completely. And you get to see what Clarice really cares about and like where her priorities lie. And like it softens her mm-hmm. a little bit right from the first moment that we see her in this book. And then that continues throughout the rest of the book um, as Percy kind of gets to know her perspective. And I'll talk more about the whatever parallels exist between her and Percy as we keep going. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think I kind of touched on earlier. It's like, I feel like this book, you really feel like Rick sat down and was like, okay, what has every character learned from book one? And I feel like with Clarice, you know, she wasn't as much of a presence in book one, but I feel like like her biggest 
mess up in book one was like focusing way too much on petty revenge and not being a leader and i feel like i can see that progression of her being one of the stronger campers who's better at battle having to take on more responsibility off page while percy's just been like chilling in manhattan for a whole school year (laughs) without much problem and i think um what's also interesting is i feel like clarice kind of starts the series as a bully But I feel like versus, like, the Draco Malfoy treatment, where, like, Clarice is the favorite of the, like, really terrible adult, she never, like, wants to be, and she never (laughs) leans into it in a way that she could. Like, she doesn't, I feel like she's a little more of, like, a nuanced take on that, where she's just, like... Like, when, even when she kind of gets the pointed favoritism of, like, leading a quest, like, it's been built up so much about, like, how important leading a quest is that you, like, know, like, she's not just taking it because it's, like, petty. You know, she's taking it because, like, truly, this is the only way to, like, really get what you need as a half-blood. You know, like... Mm-hmm. She also has that line where Tantalus tries to give her the credit for saving the camp at the beginning. And she immediately, yeah. like, interrupts him to be like, no, I didn't. And, like, well, yeah. tries not to accept. And then she also has, oh, I don't know if she's mentioned by name, but I assume that she's part of the, like, secret border patrol that they make up. There's, like, oh, a throwaway I'm sure. line I'm sure she about the border it. patrol. I'm sure she started And it. I was like, I know Clarice is on this, I know that Percy is on this, and I know that Annabeth is on this. And the fact that all of them at this moment are, like, at odds <laughs> at the point when that comes up i was like i want to be at that meeting <laughs> i want to know how know. how you guys scheduled all that when you're well, I'm all... sure beckendorf's on it too beckendorf's on it of course oh he's introduced in this book so silena i believe i don't think she was in book one yeah we meet beckendorf we meet who is the son of Hephaestus? connor and travis connor travis stole sons of hermy <laughs> we meet selena <laughs> selena beauregard daughter of aphrodite and selena beauregard I always said Selena Beauregard, uh-huh. which I know is wrong. <laughs> and then later on, we meet Chris Rodriguez, who is a, an undetermined kid from the Hermes cabin who has now gone over to Luke's side. But yeah, we get all these characters introduced who make the camp feel like more lived in and like mm. more familiar because Percy is more familiar with these people. Like, last time they were kind of strangers, like, oh, some Apollo kid went this way, and, like, an Ares kid came after me, but this time it's like, oh, yeah, that's Beckendorf. And has known them for a year now. Yeah. It's like, I feel like this book, it's it's helping fill out the world, a lot of this book. Yeah. We start introducing a ton of new creatures from Greek mythology in these first couple chapters mm. that... They aren't from mythology that I, as like a seventh grader reading the book, probably would have heard of. Yeah. Tantalus, the Stymphalian Burns, the Lastragonians, the Bulls. Like, maybe I would have heard of the Grey Sisters, but still it's just hitting mm. you back to back with like fight scenes and action scenes where like the first book takes a little bit more time between yeah. creatures and the stuff it introduces is like the Minotaur, which you've heard of, Medusa, which you've heard of, probably the Fates, but this book hits you with like one after the other so that you're left feeling like almost like Percy did in book one like trying to play catch up and hold Mm. on to what you know and like parse through all of this information as it's still coming at you and it makes the world feel much bigger than you realized which I think is a large part of what this book is trying to do as a whole taking us into a realm we didn't know existed going into open water (laughs) building out the world and the characters before we start digging into them later on. Which also, incidentally, is sort of what the Odyssey is all about. 
because the thing about ancient Greece is, especially in the islands, is a few facts that I think make the Odyssey seem a lot more like, oh, I see where that comes from. (laughs) One of which is that there are a ton of islands in the Mediterranean. Like, it's um, one of the reasons why, like, the seafaring culture kind of exists is because, like, there are so many and they're so small that the only way to really, like, start building society or even, like, get everything you needed was always through trade, specifically maritime trade. You know, when you're sailing around and you only really have the stars to navigate, you're going to encounter land a lot and you're not really going to know what's there. The other thing is, like, the Mediterranean was really dangerous. Like, there's a lot of storms. It's very deep. There's not a lot of, like, sea life compared to a lot of other places. It's very cold. So you can kind of see it's like, that's a hostile environment where you're always kind of moving from island to island and you never really know what you're going to get. Like, you can kind of see how these stories spring up because, you know, you're like, well, what could be there? Who knows? Like, giant monster or cannibals or these the lotus eaters, you know? Like, who, who's to say what these people do? Mm. Okay, so we get the quest for the fleece announced to save the camp because that's the only thing that will save Thalia's tree from the poisoning. Um, which is why the camp borders are overrun, and why monsters are coming in, and why they need border patrol, etc. And uh, Percy is not going on this quest. Instead, what happens is Percy kind of is going to think about going off on his own, and he gets approached by... Wait, before he gets approached by Hermes, though, Percy has a dream. Another dream about Grover, where we get the introduction of the empathy link. Grover has created a neural link between himself and Percy um, so that they can always have a means of contacting each other. Um, Mm -hmm. So that means that they can appear in each other's dreams and read each other's emotions. um, And if one dies, the other dies or ends up comatose. Yeah. That's like pretty wild. He's like, yeah, I opened up this empathy link. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) you have to come save me. Or like, else. I mean, I was gonna, <laughs> but like, oh my god, yeah. And I, I, this is a concept that I uh, love more than anything. <laughs> I, there are, I there are it's... four styles. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? There That's like closer to what I was thinking. I was thinking like drifting from Pacific Rim, <laughs> but mm-hmm. four dyad might be closer to what this is. <laughs> but I like, I like it as a sort of physical manifestation of percy and grover's relationship Mm. like it being a sort of if you die i die i can speak to you without needing to speak like you can feel what i feel my thoughts are your thoughts like you know what i'm doing it's like their relationship made into like a physical thing that shows how bonded they are but like they were already like that (laughs) yeah like in the first book they were already like that so i like that as like a a symbol of their relationship going forward Anyway, now we see Hermes. <laughs> yeah, now we get to the, now we meet Luke's dad, which is great because I think, as far as we're aware, he's only met his dad like once or twice at this point. He's met him once. He says in the first book, met him once, and we know it it happens in Westport, Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, but Westport, Connecticut. Wonder where that is. I wouldn't know. <laughs> it's definitely not the town we grew up in. No way. Or a recording in right now. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving! Hermes yeah. is one of my favorite gods that we encounter in this series. 
because mm. he makes like a real effort to appear approachable and like down to earth by appearing as like a jogger or a postman and at the same time he is the entire reason this series is playing out like this mm. like he is where luke's resentment stems from uh, like from their non-existent relationship and like watching Hermes yeah. try to cope with that and still be like oh I'm like the cool dad it's like no you're not <laughs> yeah it was interesting I wrote down a couple of the things he says because I felt like well they're all related to he kind of he tells the story of him uh inventing the liar which is um a pretty famous one in um uh, mythology it's like kind of the Hermes like his origin story and then mm. um at the end Percy is like oh yeah so what does that mean and Hermes says something kind of interesting, which is, it's a true story, not a fable. Does it need a moral? Which, mm. considering, you know, it's a myth, and it, even in this world, has been turned into a fable with a moral. With a moral. It's an interesting point to bring up. Because uh, I think that's something else on reflection this, this particular book in this series does an interesting job with, is, like, kind of calling into question, like, what is the line between story and reality in this series and these books? Because for a lot of these characters, they're not stories. They're, like, events. They're history. Yeah. I'm now thinking about the idea of the entire world having reduced your story down to a single message you're going to take away from it and like you're still alive mm, yep and that's kind of the interesting thing too i think that it's starting to kind of creep up on is like this idea of like are there good guys and bad guys and morals or are those lines a lot more blurred when you're actually on the ground doing it you know and then the other thing i wrote down is after Hermes says that he's like well i wonder what the moral is what am i trying to tell you Young people don't always do what they're told, but if they can pull it off and do something wonderful, sometimes they escape punishment. Which I thought was funny, because to me, I was like, it felt very much like Luke is what Luke is doing. <laughs> but it's interesting to me also, like, thinking about Luke as a child of Hermes. I mean, there's, like, a lot of reasons why I think he is a really interesting choice and a very good choice for an antagonist. But, like, I think here as well, like, if his dad is the person who's always broken all the rules and kind of made the best of it and been able to get away with it, because that is what who Hermes is as a god. I mean, all of the gods, to an extent, break the rules and get away with it. But I think Hermes, like, his whole characterization, which he gives in his origin story. And yeah. I think, like, Luke being that guy's son and Luke subconsciously, at least, or wanting very much to impress him for a very long time. You can see how that mindset is coming through in a way that I feel like even Luke doesn't fully realize. Oh, I think Luke would hate if you drew any of these lines to him. <laughs> While we're on the subject of Hermes and Luke's relationship, going back to sort of what I said about the fact that Hermes is sort of trying to counter and like cope with <laughs> the way that his relationship with Luke has caused to this entire war that's about to start happening. His way of doing it this time is by sending Percy out on a quest to save Luke. And... I thought that was interesting because the way he talks about Luke is it's like he still is holding on to this belief that Luke is simply being manipulated or is misguided. And it's not Hermes's fault yet. <laughs> I think he's in a place yeah. where he's he's he hasn't realized that yet. And I and he just thinks like, oh, Luke is in danger. Like someone just needs to go talk some sense into him. Mm, yeah. And I liked that we got that right before getting to the Princess Andromeda, because then we go into our first encounter with Luke with that in mind. It introduces the idea of Luke as someone who 
needs to be saved from something, which like Percy won't consider, but the reader, this is sort of the first time that we're being offered this question of like, oh, is Luke, does he need saving? Like, what exactly would we be saving him from? Can we mm -hmm. save Luke? Which I don't think we get the answer to any of those questions <laughs> in this book beyond like, no. no, if he needs saving, like, you're not gonna be able to do it. <laughs> yeah. He certainly doesn't want, doesn't seem to want to be saved. And I'm wondering how to navigate this next part, speaking of Luke. What I will say is, for me, there are some interesting fluctuations over the course of this book, going off of what Luke says, that make me think he is not privy to Kronos's full plan mm -hmm. in a way that he thinks he is. Part of me wonders, like, how much of that is because the plan changes and how much of that is, like, always the intention. But I feel like I can't really talk about this until we get to the scene. You know the one I'm talking about. But I think that... This is also something that we kind of talked about last time with the way that Luke goes after Percy and tries to kill him at the end, but Kronos saves Percy at the end. Like, they're clearly on different pages. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, I feel like, I, I mentioned, like, I feel like everyone's kind of grown from their experiences in book one, but Luke to me is the most interesting one because he seems to have, like, be the least dimensional, at least when we first meet him to me of all of the characters, and it's because he just kind of is in super villain mode. I literally have written in my notes that Luke is in peak villain mode. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that is his growth from the last book, though, where he's just like, he's just like, I've, I've burnt my bridges, let's go. Uh, yeah, he's got that, like, casual smile on his face. He talks like he's got all the time in the world. <laughs> what interested me also is he's very blase about poisoning one of his best friends like he he's the one who poisons thalia's tree and thalia as we learned from the prior book as uh, the daughter of zeus who sacrificed herself so that luke and annabeth and grover could get to camp safely and he just kills her damn tree like dude and like very casually orders annabeth to be killed Mm -hmm. I was trying to imagine the mental gymnastics that he's doing to make this yeah. okay. And I know that, you know, at the end of this book, we find out that Thalia was sort of the end goal here. So, like, poisoning her tree probably isn't too much of a big thing to him because he knows no matter what, the police is getting back there and she's going to survive this, since that's part of the plan. Mm. But, like, that's still his family. <laughs> and I know he still cares yeah. about her. And he definitely still cares about Annabeth, but acts like he doesn't. And I feel like this is what Luke does. He justifies it to himself and will find a reason that anything he does is, like, what's necessary. Like, there's a greater mm. cause that he's serving and poisoning what's left of Thalia and killing Annabeth is um, actually with their wants and needs in mind. <laughs> he's not the one being brainwashed. They are mm -mm. by the gods. Mm -mm. And mm -mm. the resentment that they all shared once upon a time, like, that's the version of them that he's fighting for. And that version of them is gone now. So it's like, he can do what he wants now. Yeah. He says, if she were, if Thalia were alive, she'd be on my side. And Annabeth's like, yeah. no. <laughs> that was something... This is actually something I want to talk about, or at least think about, for the next book. I was wondering while I was reading this scene, and then the scene when they find the, um, like, safe house, like, in the next chapter, who actually knew Thalia best? Because mm -hmm. Luke was 14, and Annabeth was 7. <laughs> and she yeah. went after this scene, she talks to Percy and is like, oh, Thalia got mad at her dad sometimes, and, like, that's it. But, like, Luke 
talked to her about all of that and had been with her for longer and she was closer to Luke's age and I just think I don't know who I trust I... yeah but it also has to be said though for like I feel like one of the interesting things that is kind of a theme in these books is it's like when the story's over or when you know the people that were there aren't around to tell the story or to edit the story like stories kind of take the mind of their own and what generally happens when that happens is people kind of impose their own ideas and values onto stories and onto characters and stories so yes he probably did know her better but at the same time like you know Thalia has been gone a while so I wonder if like it's definitely had to have been part of the mental gymnastics he had for poisoning her in the first place yeah it's like this is what she would have wanted it's for the greater good she would have understood yeah, I think the truth of Thalia is probably somewhere between their ideas of her. And at this point, the truth of Thalia's story almost doesn't matter because Luke and Annabeth are going to take away from it the things that they take away from it. I'm really just thinking about, for Percy, like hearing all of this information and trying to understand this dead girl who has way more influence over his life than he'd probably like her to have. And just the mental image that he's building and that we are building and what information might actually be more credible. But actually getting into the scene, <laughs> I have like an entire breakdown of the conversation that Percy, Luke, and Annabeth have. That's not totally mm. necessary, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was just, it's one of my favorite moments in the book, them sitting around the casket that will become one of the symbols of this series having this argument. Mm. Because it's on one side, we've got Percy who says, despite the javelins pointed at me, it wasn't the bear twins who scared me. And then says he'd imagined what he might do to Luke if he ever saw him again, but now he can barely keep his hands from shaking. And Luke has no weapon in this scene. <laughs> he's like lounging on the couch throughout most of the <laughs> scene with his sword propped up because he's reached a level of confidence around Percy and Annabeth and around the other monsters that he keeps company with. Like, that's one of, I think, Luke's defining traits in the early books is, like, his total confidence in everything that he's mm. doing. Yeah. And that's, like, all we get from him in this scene. Like you said, he kind of has a 2D supervillain <laughs> vibe to him this mm. whole time. But yeah, so Luke is not a physical threat here, but Percy still says that that's how much that betrayal shook him. And, like, Percy barely talks in this scene, too, so it's just, like, total fear from over there. And then on the other side, we've got Annabeth, who's, like, pure rage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, like, I don't think that we've really gotten to see that kind of anger from Annabeth yet. Mm -hmm. That sort of emotional and volatile side of Annabeth that we'll get to know in this book. Annabeth shouts down Luke for everything he's done and to Thalia's memory and... Luke uses this moment to try and bring both of them to his side because they're both at like super high emotional peaks right now and he knows exactly how to target Annabeth by like bringing up her specific ambitions and like trying to manipulate mm. her high emotional state but it's pretty clear that Luke doesn't really know how to tempt Percy yet <laughs> and like he acts yeah. like he knows Percy so well and is like bringing up Percy's mom clinging to all the facts that he does know about him like the fact that his family doesn't have that much money but then when it comes down to it he says you can have power fame whatever you want <laughs> and like i think luke thinks that he understands percy but he just like really doesn't and that makes percy a little bit harder to predict for him 
And mm. that's something that he's so confident that I don't think he's totally realized yet. Yeah, I think um, that's interesting as well, because I think for me, like reading that scene, you know, it doesn't feel tempting, you as Percy. It doesn't feel like a tempting offer. Okay, so we escape the Princess Andromeda and end up in Chesapeake Bay, where we find Thalia, Luke, and Annabeth's old safe house hideout. I just really like the conversation that Annabeth and Percy have inside of the old, like, hut. Mm. Because I think that them finding that is a good example of the way Annabeth's past kind of haunts the series. Mm. Just them finding all this stuff left behind. Because I feel like uncovering Annabeth's past and understanding it is, like, at the core of the series. And especially... Percy understanding it and so it's it's important that after having that conversation Percy notes that he feels jealous when he hears Annabeth talk about it and like Percy doesn't really elaborate from there but I think of it as like a wish that he had known Annabeth longer but also that there wasn't always this like entire world behind her that he can't like possibly understand I mean I think it's also though for me like what she had was a family and I think with Percy like I know he and his mom have a great relationship and he loves her a lot but I feel like he is sort of feeling a little out of place and like he doesn't have a family in the sense of like a really big group of people to like call on especially at the beginning of the first book so I'm wondering also if it's like that found family element also that he's jealous of like this idea of like you have all these people that like can fully understand who you are and what you have to go through and what you've been through um, and you kind of go through it together. Right. And that's what he's starting to build with Annabeth, but she's constantly in two places at once. And Percy can only ever be in one. So Tyson comes back with Monster Donuts. I actually, I laughed way harder at that than I think I did when I was a kid, where it was like, some Hermes kids learn to tie like chain restaurants to like monster life forces. Right. And I was like, classic Hermes. Um, I was like, you know, it's uh, uh, it's really symbolic of the way that um, violence has unintended consequences. And oh, it wasn't just, you know, it's it's without properly addressing the issue, more issues will crop up like a Hydra's head. You know, it's it's really about Luke's revolution at the end of the day. It wasn't just an anti-consumerist rant, which it can be two things. It can... <laughs> We run into the Hydra. And, and they cleverly run away from the Hydra. Well, the Hydra is defeated by uh, Clarice showing up. Oh, right. They find the secret third option right. for defeating the Hydra, <laughs> Hydra which is cannonballs. Yep. <laughs> Hydra shows up, gets blasted with cannonball, and Clarice picks us up. She takes us aboard, and Percy goes to sleep, has another dream of Grover that I don't think too much we need to talk about happens in. Percy wakes up. And on his way to the deck, sees Clarice talking to a vision of Ares, mm. which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to see, like, to see this is what happens when the gods actually have relationships with their children. Because Ares and Clarice clearly have an established dynamic with each other. And uh, it's not a good one. <laughs> it's not a good one. Um, and I think for me, what struck me this time around as well was the parallel of like the raising the hand, mm -hmm. the parental figure raising the hand. Yeah. And I think although in, in Gabe's case in The Lightning Thief at the end, you know, it's not up to Percy, it's to Sally. 
his mom, but... Right. It's still reminiscent of Gabe. Yeah, and that's also, like, the flinch. Like, this is not the first time, nor has it, you know, only been a hand raise. Mm-hmm. And Percy says that it bothers him as much as the dream that he just had to see it, but he can't bring himself to say anything about it to Clarice. Which I feel like makes sense to me, though, because I feel like that's just one of those things where, like, how do you bring that up in a way that's helpful? Yeah. Like, when you have an antagonistic relationship with the person you're bringing it up to, (laughs) like... And I think it's also because he knows how sensitive something like that can be. It's sort of like a I see you moment that Percy is afraid to approach Clarice about because it's not one that she willingly offered him and because it gives him insight into her character that he knows she probably doesn't want anyone having especially not him okay so Clarice leads them into the entrance of the sea of monsters mm-hmm. Charybdis and Scylla yeah I really enjoy this scene I think it's a really fun take um, I love that, like, Percy tries to calm the whirlpool, but, like, some things are beyond his scope. I like that he has a limit on his powers. That's good. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoy that, like, Scylla scoops up Percy via his backpack. I remember, like, reading, I was like, that's, it's just some good action writing, man. It's good. It's good. <laughs> yeah, and him turning around and, like, falling as he sees it explode. It's wonderful. It's <laughs> also, we lose Tyson. Yes. <laughs> Rip. And we lose Clarice, so we're back. Wait, actually, we lose everybody. We lose everyone but Annabeth. So Annabeth and Percy end up in a raft. These upcoming chapters are, like, back-to-back so good. (laughs) Rereading it, I was like, this is it. This is, I think, essential to the development of Percy and Annabeth's relationship. Like, the two of them alone going through these two separate and very revealing temptations back-to-back. That's interesting, because I felt like Percy's guinea pig arc was felt a little out of place to me. Interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about it. They arrive at Circe's Island. It's like a resort. And I want to note we meet one of Circe's attendants, and her name is Hyla? Hila? Hi- I don't know how you should say that. I think it's Hyla. I'm just going to note that she's there, and that Annabeth also uh, happens to go get her hair done. <laughs> just keep that in mind. <laughs> But one of the things Percy hears as they're kind of entering that's part of the ambiance is a voice singing. And here's where my ears prick up a little bit, because as someone who studied a lot of linguistics and ancient languages, one of my pet peeves in books is when um, writers will do something like what Rick does in The Lightning Thief, where there'll be a phrase... That goes, I think in The Lightning Thief, it was like, Kronos was speaking a language like Greek, but much older. And like, the thing is, we know what those languages were. So like, just just tell me what, just tell me which one. Just tell me. <laughs> like, I want to know. I'm curious. But, 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 get this. Circe is singing a language. I wrote this down. <laughs> Her words were in some language other than ancient Greek but just as old. And I'm like, Rick, not again. But then the next sentence is Minoan, maybe. (laughs) Which I love that Percy just pulled that one out. (laughs) I know, I know, I love it. But Rick, you've been doing research. And then it gets more interesting to me because Percy can understand what she's singing. Now, there's one possible explanation of this, which is that um, 
it's magic, so you kind of get the vibes. But another interesting explanation uh, is, so the people we know of as the ancient Greeks who spoke ancient Greek were actually not indigenous to the Greek islands, Greek mainland, etc. And the Minoans, their civilization fell to, as far as we can reckon, around 1600 BC. For context, Socrates would have lived in the 400s BC. So that's 1200 years before Socrates is when their civilization was destroyed. Again, it's just part of this idea of like, yeah, civilization sprang up out of nowhere. Like, no, it didn't. Like, <laughs> there's a thriving Mediterranean trade network and really sophisticated societies. Like, we've uncovered plumbing, indoor plumbing in these palaces that, again, were destroyed, destroyed in 1600 BC, that the likes of which would never be seen again in Europe until the 1800s. What's interesting, though, is the people we know of as the ancient Greeks um, would have come into the area before that and been in contact and in trade with the Minoans. And we have evidence for that as well. The biggest piece being that they actually took their alphabet. So the Minoan alphabet we call Linear A. And the first Greek alphabet we have record of is Linear B. But that makes me wonder if that's why Rick thinks they'd be mutually intelligible where they're separate languages, but you can still, like, understand someone speaking. Percy does say it's like he understands what she's singing about, but not exactly what she's singing. The quote says, Yeah. I could understand what she's saying about moonlight in the olive trees, the colors of the sunrise, and magic, something about mm -hmm. magic. So he's not catching all of it, but he's catching mm -hmm. some of it. Yeah, so again, I'm wondering, I, I know... We've got some, it, there's a good development on, I think I mentioned in our last episode, like the more you research this stuff, the more the kind of like lie of the Western canon falls apart and we're seeing it. He's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so Percy's turned into a guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, Percy's turned into a guinea pig. I, I think even when I read it as a kid, I remember not fully feeling that whole thing where it was like all of a sudden he understood his own cowardice. Because to me, I never really saw kernels of that before. And I felt like a lot of his arc... I don't know, I don't really see Percy as a character that avoids conflict. So, like, he, he invites it most of the time. Like, he actively picks fights a lot of the time. I enjoyed it as... Like a moment, but it didn't feel very connected. I mean, explicitly, yes, it's about Percy realizing that there's something in him that constantly wants to run away, which is something that we kind of brought up last time was that instinct to run away or people telling Percy to run away, which comes up a lot in these books. Like I, there, there are a lot of moments where he feels like he needs to get out. So for me, it was more about becoming aware of that instinct in him. And mm -hmm. actually having to sit in it for a while instead of just like mm -hmm. rushing into action or finding a solution as quickly as possible. Like he couldn't do anything in that moment. And so now has this mm -hmm. little jumpy animal inside of him. But to me, I focus less on the guinea pig part <laughs> when I read that scene <laughs> and more on what he was actually tempted by. Mm, I, I feel like this is a scene that I've always had a soft spot for because it's not a scene that I feel like we get often with male characters, the like mm. wish to be 
beautiful <laughs> than mm. taking a potion for like what many might call vain reasons. <laughs> yeah. And I just I like it because it is it is seriously influencing him to a certain ex- extent. Mm. Uh, it feels like he's a little bit under a spell, but at the same time, it is something that he clearly wants. Mm. The like beauty and confidence that comes easily with it and like mm. perfection that he doesn't have to fight for. Yeah. And there was there was wording that I wrote down. Um, the wording here. He says that he's wearing just the right clothes and a confident smile. And to me, it just made me think of Luke. Mm. <laughs> because we had just seen Luke in just the right clothes with that constant, confident smile. <laughs> mm. And it's just it's something that Luke can do and was just doing perfectly. And it's like there I feel like there's something subconscious in Percy that still sees Luke as someone he wants to emulate and it's not something that he's like even aware of that he feels that but I think that this scene is sort of a reflection of that yeah Percy's turned into a guinea pig and Annabeth saves him and has one of her best moments yes I also I I enjoy this too because like, in the Odyssey, basically, Odysseus's men go off and they don't come back. And he's like, weird, what happened to them? So he sends some more men off to scout the island, and they also don't come back. And he's like, fuck, I gotta go myself. And Hermes stops him and is like, hey, Jesus, there's a sorceress there. Take this flower so she can't do spells on you. And he gets there, and she tries to turn him into a pig, and she, it doesn't work because he's got the flower. And then he's able to overpower her and basically force her to turn his men back. Okay, so now let me read uh, this moment where Annabeth saves Percy. It says, Blue fire coiled from her fingers, curling like serpents around Annabeth. I watched horror struck, but nothing happened. Annabeth was still Annabeth, only angrier. She leapt forward and stuck the point of her knife against Circe's neck. Annabeth is stepping into the role of Odysseus in the story. I am going to say a lot about that in the next chapter. (laughs) Oh, oh, I know. But (laughs) what I really enjoy is he's basically kind of gender swapping the roles of a lot of the heroic deeds. And I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. So they escape uh, Cersei's Island, steal a Blackbeard ship, which can't wait for that scene. (laughs) So then um, they're sailing, and Annabeth wakes Persia. Oh, he has no, a dream. Yeah, Sorry. he has a dream. <laughs> a great dream. You can't skip this dream. Percy has, I feel like, his most nightmarish nightmare yet. It starts with the voices of the dead around him um, while he's on the Princess Andromeda, and he's looking at the coffin, and then mm-hmm. <laughs> again, Thalia's ghost pops up. <laughs> And, like, the last time we saw her was sort of in that, like, silly recurring dream that Percy used to have. But, like, this is, like, a proper nightmare. And we have that mm-hmm. moment of her approaching the coffin and then being horrified by what she sees on the inside. And screaming as the light yes. it emits overwhelms her. And it's, like, it's so good. It's, like, I have nothing to analyze here. It's just so good. Well, we're, we're going to come back to it Right. Later. This is important to remember for later. This particular dream. Yes. And I just love He's it. He's setting something up. I just love it. <laughs> okay. But, and then, <laughs> um, Annabeth wakes Percy up, telling him 
that uh, they're about to approach the land of the sirens. So Annabeth asks Percy to tie her to the mast so that she can hear the sirens, um, which I thought was I I thought it was sweet that Percy doesn't even try to argue with her about this being dangerous. No, I love that. I literally wrote down I love that. He just knows this is important specifically for Annabeth to hear and is like, yeah, I'll help you with this. <laughs> so Annabeth is tied up. Um, Percy plugs his ears with candle wax and sails closer to the sirens. So yeah, she makes break for it and he has to go after her. And when he grabs her, when they're reaching the island, he's able to see what she sees. What Annabeth is currently swimming toward is a vision of her mom her dad, and Luke all sitting out on, I think it's in Central Park, is it? Yep. Okay, all sitting out in Central Park with a skyline behind them that Annabeth completely redesigned. So a, mm -hmm. a New York that she has built from the ground up. What's interesting about that is it uh, kind of reminded me, so it's described as it's like New York, but rebuilt in marble. And what's interesting to me about that is um, there's like a famous quote from Augustus, who's the first Roman emperor, where he says that he, he began with a Rome built in brick and left it a Rome built in marble. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> so that reminded me of that a little bit. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. Are we, are we becoming emperor? Are we taking power? I like that. Considering her conversation with Percy afterward about her mm -hmm. hubris yeah. and feeling like she would do a better job of... Of ruling yep. the world, basically. <laughs> Here we see where Annabeth cross Annabeth's uh, mentality crosses over with Luke's a little bit. Like we get a lot of that crossover from Percy, but I feel like it's from a different angle. Like I feel like with Percy, what he connects with is that anger and a lot of the feelings of abandonment. And like I don't think Percy ever wants to like build a better world. Like I think he, in in theory, he would want to, but he doesn't. He's not sitting there like I want to design it. Although the other interesting thing is that, like, Luke's solution, though, isn't to build something new. So here's where they differ a bit as well. Because Annabeth, for her, it's all about creating something new. Um, although, I don't know, actually, because she, the architecture is all, like, Greek-inspired, and so yeah, maybe not. Yeah, it's a little, because Luke does want to build something new, and that he wants to, like, tear it all down so that something can come out of it. Mm. it's just that his ideas are tied up in yeah golden age but annabeth's are tied think, up in yeah i think hers are also though because like i kind of mentioned all of this like the architecture is very telling to me because it's like again you're not really building something new you're taking the ideals and aesthetics mm -hmm. of a past that we will never fully understand and glorifying it yeah and i think that's totally in line with annabeth's character because she still has that great love for her mom and does think that like we need to honor the gods in some way and still has a lot of those old ideals kind of hammered into her because she's had them in her head since she was seven <laughs> well that is also sort of a very augustus thing like uh Rome basically went from a society where there was a very strong feeling that any kind of centralized rule from like a monarch, like uh, they, they had kings before the Republic and they're basically like never again. 
But because of all the civil wars that happened and because of a lot of a lot of events leading up to Caesar taking power for himself as a dictator, which was the term at the time, it didn't have negative connotations, though. Augustus kind of was able to take back over and basically be like, okay, like, we're going to stop the madness. No more civil wars. I am going to build us into something better. Um, that's at least that's what he would want you to think. Yeah, it's very Augustine. Mm. That's really cool, too. You know, society if Annabeth had met the emperors. That's <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get to that. In terms of the Odysseus myth, like bringing it back to the idea of Annabeth as Odysseus, mm-hmm. I feel like the parallels between Annabeth and Odysseus are really obvious in this book, like the tying herself to the mast and mm-hmm. like the wisdom being blessed by Athena, the nobody scene at the end. But this moment was what really solidified her as like the series' Odysseus to me because it gives us that glimpse into Annabeth's desires and at the core of them is the want to swim home. Like the chapter title being Annabeth Mm. tries to swim home like on a figurative level. Like Mm. she wants to return to the home that she's built, to her family, to her mom, dad, Luke. And like Thalia probably would be Mm. there. I would put her there, but... (laughs) But I think after Luke's betrayal, her priorities kind of click into place for this series, which is like to keep together the family that Mm. she has now with like Percy Grover and like Chiron, but at the same time find a way back to the family that she lost. Mm. So that journey home that's at the core of the Odyssey is also Annabeth's journey of trying and trying for years to get home. Mm. I like that a lot, actually. What's also interesting is this is now the second time that Percy's kind of privy to what should be a private, very vulnerable moment, first for Clarice and now for Annabeth, where he's getting a lot more insight into like their lives and like what, how they feel about things and like the, you know, just getting a little more background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this book kind of turns Percy into a little bit of just a watcher. Yeah. Because he also has the empathy link with Grover which Grover doesn't exactly summon him half the time. Percy just is privy to these moments and is constantly surrounded by his friend's fear and overwhelming emotions (laughs) and just spends most of the book, I feel like, processing them. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then we end up on Cyclops Island. Yep. Am I missing anything? I don't think so. (laughs) I think they get away from the sirens. Their ship gets destroyed. Oh, sorry, that happens. No, that's later. You're spoiling things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm spoiling things. I want to note when we get to the Cyclops Island and we find Clarice there and find out Clarice spent this whole book thinking everyone on the ship had died, including Percy and Annabeth. Yeah. She thought she would fail this quest from the beginning and then had that happen. Just imagining her version of the story here. Yeah, we don't talk enough about the trauma. I just kept thinking, like, who knows what obstacles and like strange islands she ended up on alone on a lifeboat and made it there by herself before Percy and Annabeth. Hmm. I just, Clarice always has these plot lines or like these stories that happen in the background of like every book. And every time I'm like, please tell me more. Like it's literally Mm. every book something happens except for the first one. She's always doing Mm. something. And this is why she's one of my favorite characters. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I like about this scene is that it's 
one of the first scenes in this series that has genuinely struck me as dangerous. I think specifically because Annabeth gets like very injured during mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> because Annabeth has her ribs cracked during it and we hear her scream after getting her like head yeah. bashed in. Like, she gets <laughs> dropped on her head onto rocks from like uh, quite a height. Yeah. It's like a slight tone shift that we'll get more of in the Titans mm-hmm. curse. I feel like that's a huge part of the Titans curse when mm-hmm. we get to it. It's the first time I think in this series besides Percy being poisoned at the end of the Lightning Thief <laughs> where we see someone like genuinely get very hurt and it sort of breaks this illusion of everyone's fine. This is a children's book. And I think the polyphemous part of the Odyssey is also where shit gets real in a lot of ways basically it's like the first moment of true horror in the odyssey there's uh, a history of like guest rights in ancient greece that's like a very like big cultural thing and the way it goes down in the odyssey is they basically arrive on this island and are hosted by polyphemus 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 and they, they bring gifts, like host gifts, because that's what you're supposed to do, is exchange gifts. And then he's like, all right, time for dinner, grabs two of the men and eats them. And it's like a complete bastardization of what this ritual is supposed to be, where it's like, oh, no, you're the dinner. And he just grabs two random dudes, nothing they can do about it. And then he wakes up the next morning and he eats two more dudes for breakfast. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> and they come up with this whole plan where he goes out in the field and they spend all day plotting. And they hatch a plan where they basically serve him wine, which again is part of the ritual of hosting. They get him really drunk so that he eats two more men and passes out because he's so full. And then they've sharpened this steak and they, they roast it in the fire so it's like hot. And they pierce his eye with it. And it's very graphically described. Like there's, there's the verb sizzling is in there. Like it's... it's quite a passage that's really where you're like oh my god (laughs) like if you're the greek if you're a greek like listening to this all the way through which you wouldn't but you know if you were like this is the moment where it's like oh yeah we're not in kansas anymore like this is the world where monster logic rules so it's also interesting to me this is kind of where the series also kind of takes off in a way Mm -hmm. we start on our own odyssey yeah the end of this fight with polyphemus Polyf- this is the problem it's like you don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced and you know how you pronounce it in your head and you're just like i don't know what to do <laughs> is um more sad than horrifying i here. don't know though okay because i wrote this down because when he's actually fighting polyphemus he taps into this anger to the point yeah. where Grover's... I wrote that down, too. Yeah, I, was be like, I would be shocked if you didn't write this down. To the point where Grover's <laughs> like, dude, like, Jesus. Like, I know he's a monster, but damn. <laughs> like, there's a moment um, where I think Percy's like, I don't know if I'm going to win this fight. And then he just feels this anger bubble up. And he's like, I got this. And it's not even a question. He just goes... Like, nothing changes. He just, mm-hmm. like, harnesses right? Like, anger. he doesn't even think. I think that's the thing is he stops thinking. He runs yeah. on pure rage and lets it take him. And I can think of a couple other times that this happens in the series where Percy stops thinking and yeah. lets anger take him over. And it's very 
child of Aries of him. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm surprised no one suggested that when they were trying to figure out who his parent was like in the first place. If you're book. thinking about it logically, though, like if you're like Poseidon having the temperament of the sea, it's like there are moments where the storm happens. Yes. And I think that's kind of why it comes to Percy in waves, mm-hmm. uh, pun not intended. Like it's it's something I imagine Aries kids can probably also do, like tap into a well of anger and find strength in it. Mm-hmm. But for Percy, it's more of an overwhelming force. It's less him using it and more it overtaking him in a rush until mm-hmm. he eventually snaps out of it and sees whatever damage he caused, which, yeah, is probably more in line with Poseidon. Although he does all of that, and then even then he has a moment at the end where he doesn't want to kill. He remembers that, like, Polyphemus, god damn it. He remembers Polyphemus <laughs> is also a son of Poseidon, and he has this moment where he's like, oh. And I think this is where, again, like, what Chyson introduces this idea of, like, these are also the sons of the gods, and they're a lot more like you than you would maybe like to think, kind of comes right. up. and the idea of compassion for a monster Mm -hmm. when does a monster deserve violence yeah and i thought you know we talked about the line that percy's drawn between human and monster and the harm that he can do Mm -hmm. and this is the moment where i feel like he has to actually confront Mm -hmm. the idea of when exactly does a monster deserve violence and like come up with an answer to Mm it and what i thought was especially interesting after, you know, they go through this whole fight, um, was Polyphemus's... Po- I genuinely I know. don't know how to say it anymore. <laughs> His line on page 227, he says, humans, not the same, nasty, tricky, lying, which is mm. the exact same perception that we've had of the Cyclopses yeah. that, or that Annabeth had. And that we learned through her story about them. So there's a layer here where we're questioning the line between human and monster and like the monstrous perspective Mm -hmm. on humans and how it's really not that different. Nasty tricking and lying is a pretty good description of Odysseus, so. Well. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's also interesting because I feel like the Percy and Polyphemus both being sons of Poseidon in this moment changes the dynamic a lot. Also, when you think about um, a theme we kind of brought up earlier, which is abandonment of the gods to their children. Because in the Odyssey, Polyphemus is able to use his godly parentage to kind of, as a weapon. And here, this just doesn't even play into the story. It's not going to be effective. And it's also interesting to me that abandonment is a central theme of this book when it is, in many ways, also a central theme of the Odyssey. That's always one that really comes through to me when you think of the Odyssey kind of in the wider cultural context, because the Iliad and the Odyssey were written down in 800 BC, and that was during the Dark Ages, because basically what happened was, as I mentioned, the Minoan Empire kind of fell in 1600 BC, thereabouts, and then they were superseded for a little bit um, by the uh, Mycenaean Greek civilization. Now, these people would have spoken Greek. And um, what they kind of did was take over all of the Minoan trade routes for a while, build palaces. And so basically they kind of held on and maintained that network um, until around 1100 BC when that civilization also fell. At the end of the day, um, the whole Mediterranean was kind of plunged into a dark ages after that. 
And so we fast forward right to like 800 BC, and that's when the Iliad and the Odyssey are written down. But we know they come from an oral tradition, which means that they were basically passed down and spoken and memorized um, for however long before that. But all of the characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey are figures that best we can tell by their descriptions and by the descriptions and the timelines of, you know, the events transpiring were actually Mycenaean of the Mycenaean civilization. So this is the civilization that would have fallen hundreds of years before these poems were written down. And the best we can tell that we think happened is a lot of these people living in the Dark Ages in Greece was still able to see the ruins of the Mycenaean civilization and able to find artifacts like shields and helmets. And there's a lot of pieces of evidence that indicate that the Iliad and Odyssey were composed during the Dark Ages and are much more reflective of Dark Age society than Mycenaean society, meaning that they basically made these stories up about the civilization that preceded them. Hmm. And I think like a lot of the Odyssey really speaks to that feeling of having to go it alone, being kind of stranded, constantly losing the people around you. And also, you know, being helped, but also really forsaken by the gods. Hearing all of this and connecting it back to abandonment in the Sea of Monsters, beyond being abandoned by the gods, the idea of creating stories from a long gone civilization and that being part of why Luke is like on this whole quest, um, like the propaganda that we talked about last time and how he has sort of created his own version of how history played out. But at the same time, how he has been abandoned by Western civilization and feels lost by the world that he lives in. It speaks to the way people now treat Western civilization and that yearning for a story and civilization that may not have ever existed the way that you've heard the stories of it so we save grover save grover get the fleece save annabeth because the fleece has magical healing properties that was a moment that i really loved was clary's taking care of annabeth yeah and she's like oh i know what broken ribs feel like and like carrying her back it was nice (laughs) sorry no it is (laughs) you're right about that one (laughs) so we make it back to Miami with the fleece and send it ahead with Clarice because she deserves this. <laughs> yeah, and then we get some interesting lines in this encounter between uh, Luke and Percy. The only mm-hmm. one I wrote down really was that Kronos apparently calls Percy an unreliable weapon. Yep, I've got. <laughs> I have that one in a different font in all bold <laughs> in my document. Uh, He says, Kronos was right, Percy. You're an unreliable weapon. You need to be replaced. Which is where I need to rework all of my theories. (laughs) Because Kronos, until this point, seems to have wanted Percy on his side. Yeah. By, like, stopping Ares from killing him and still reaching out to Percy in his dreams. And, like, generally seems to want Percy on his side because he knows Percy is likely the child of the prophecy. So he can't really risk him defending Olympus. But here we have confirmation that Percy was specifically a weapon that Kronos wanted to use. But he's since decided that Percy's too unreliable and needs to be replaced. And I, it, skipping ahead a little bit, <laughs> um, we get this quote from Chiron when Chiron shows up where it says, 
Because whether or not you are the child of the prophecy Kronos thinks you might be, and after today he will finally despair of turning you to his side. That is the only reason he hasn't killed you yet, you know. As soon as he's sure he can't use you, he will destroy you. Um, which means in the next book, Kronos should be in full kill Percy mode. <laughs> but it just, it makes the timeline of like, when exactly did Kronos decide actually he's an unreliable weapon and needs to be replaced? And why was it before this moment when apparently Kronos would despair of turning him to his side? And why would he ever despair of turning him to his side when he's still a child of the prophecy? <laughs> and like, I know this all relates to what Kronos's ultimate plan was in this book, which is bringing Thalia back so that she is the child because Percy's unreliable. But at the same time, he still keeps reaching out to him. I wonder if maybe what also seals it is that it seems like this plan of Kronos's has two possible outcomes. Number one, Percy gets the fleece and brings it to Kronos, either directly or indirectly, and is thus able to kind of be more converted to his side. Or he doesn't, and Thalia gets brought back. So a part of me wonders if, like, this was, like, a test of Percy's metal. I, I think this is a test, maybe, of the Percy-Luke dynamic of, like, can can Luke get Percy onto this side? Either through strength or wisdom. Mm. And Percy kind of outsmarts it and doesn't, doesn't do the test. And that's kind of the moment Luke's like, uh-oh, for reasons mm. we'll discuss later. Yeah. Because he does freak out. He freaks out. He's like, oh, no. <laughs> this means we're going to go to plan B. Plan C. <laughs> well, what, maybe it's plan C, but also maybe it's that he knows Thalia's going to get brought back, which means she'll know what he did. Right, and he won't already be on the path to victory in his mind because Kronos won't have been yeah. brought back by the fleece. And also, he's not the one bringing the fleece because I feel like when he's talking about how he would give it back when he was oh, done with it. he's picturing him showing up. Yeah, to save the camp with the fleece. I never thought about that. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> like, he would be the hero. He'd be Jason. Bring the fleece back and save yeah. everybody. He would be the hero and everyone would see it. And it would be that grand display of victory that he never got when he came back from his actual quest. Well, b between all that, Percy fights Luke. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, Percy fights he Luke. He gets in the water. He gets stabbed with backbiter and it hurts. And both times I read this, I thought he'd coated his blade in the same poison that he used on Thalia's tree. Because there kept being mentions of, like, how weak his limbs that got, like, scratched were. And how much it hurt. And I was like, it's poisoned. And then it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's just, it hurts to get stabbed sometimes. <laughs> yeah. What I do like about this scene is something that we already kind of mentioned. Was that Luke taught Percy how to sword fight. So everything Percy knows, Luke taught him, and he can't possibly win unless he goes against his training. Like, he'll never win this fight in a conventional way, so he always has to think of a different way out of it. And he would have died this time because he didn't actually do anything different. He just kept doing what mm -hmm. he learned. If the party ponies hadn't shown up, he I would know. be dead. <laughs> <laughs> but they do. Chiron and his brethren come in and save the day and they gallop at lightning speed all the way from Florida to Long Island. Well, after we get back to camp as well, we do get a second scene with Hermes where he shows up and basically talks to Percy about Luke. Mm -hmm. Basically, they have an entire conversation 
about abandonment. Mm-hmm. And Hermes says that he basically has been trying to help Luke indirectly. And that's how the gods have to operate. And he has this quote that I wrote down. He says, if we were to interfere every time our children had a problem, it would only cause more problems and more resentment, which is just not true. <laughs> yeah. And I, again, Polyphemus is a great example of that from the Odyssey. He's like, dad, fuck this dude up for me. And Poseidon's like, I got you. Yeah. And he does. <laughs> I mean, it's also always the problem of, like, if magic exists, why isn't the world a better place? Which I think, that question I feel like comes up in almost every fantasy you read. And I think this idea of the gods not being able to move directly, for me, can be tied to how worship has kind of taken a backseat in society. Like, there were times when the gods were a fundamental pillar for, like, the functioning of a society. They're fundamental answer to a lot of questions and unknowns but now that's not really what we turn to gods for and so i wonder in this universe if it's also a product of how the gods have had to take a back seat also sure in our society but at the same time we do have gods who will show up and interfere directly throughout this entire series And also, they aren't just, you know, magical beings in this world. They are parents. (laughs) And so this idea of I'm afraid of you relying on me, so I'm not going to do anything at all. It's like, I'm not surprised the gods are like this, considering all of the things that they represent in this series. But also, oh, if I were to interfere every time that he needed something, it's like you could interfere once. (laughs) You could have interfered once when he was a kid and like none of this would be happening. Well, I think he did in that he gave Luke his quest for the He did, but it was too late. Yeah. He only interfered once there was already a problem. Like Luke was 14 when he first met his dad. Mm. It was already going downhill at that point. (laughs) And it's interesting also because you get Hermes talking about that and then you get like a couple direct contradictions to what he's saying. Because he says all of this and then delivers Percy a note written by his dad. Right. <laughs> and it just, I mean, to be fair, it's the vaguest letter in existence. It just says, brace, brace yourself. yourself. <laughs> but it's a much more direct interference, I think, than we've seen. It's a, it's a direct communication. Mm-hmm. He does apparently give a much more direct communication to Tyson though yeah that's what I was gonna say and then the, the next example we get is Percy's talking to Tyson at the end of the journey um I forget if we mentioned but Tyson it just turns out was not dead oh yeah Tyson's <laughs> back <laughs> Tyson's back he saved them all from the Cyclops it's great but Tyson tells Percy that um he prayed to Poseidon for help and Poseidon sent him to Percy So again, an interesting example, too, because it's another Cyclops who's the son of Poseidon who is getting a much more direct, like, this is what I want. Like, a much more direct answer to his prayer. And now at the end of the book, he's going to start an internship with Poseidon. Yeah. At the bottom of the sea. He's he's working with his dad. He's a nepotism baby down in the... (laughs) And the most purse he can get out of him is his cameo at the end of the book, the Brace Yourself you know, I feel like because Percy's the main character, we expect a lot more 
from his relationship with Poseidon. And it's a good reminder that like Poseidon has is doing the same thing Hermes is doing to Luke. And then I don't have anything to say about uh, Thalia showing up except that uh, welcome. The drama. Welcome. I remember when I first read that, I was like, I was floored. Right. It's so good. It's <laughs> it's such a reveal. And then Annabeth is the one who finds her. Right. It's And the way that no one is moving, like even Chiron is just like, oh my God. And I think it's also, in a, like, again, that's another final example of this sort of theme as well as like. You know, she's dying and her dad turns her into a tree. That's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's just like, yeah, okay. Poof. It's better if you don't exist, so I'm just going to turn you into a tree. And yeah. her kind of having to come to terms with that. Yeah, she's about to wake up and realize a lot of things. <laughs> what a good cliffhanger. What a cliffhanger. I'm going to ask the same question that I asked last week, which was... Uh, In this book, uh, the bead at the end of the book that's given to symbolize uh, what happened that summer is an image of the Golden Fleece. And so I'm wondering if you were to choose what image to put on your bead to symbolize, like, what was most, what was the standout scene for you in this book? Mm. Uh, What would it be? I feel like I, I knew you were going to ask this, and I thought of an answer, and I've completely forgotten what my answer I thought of was. I knew I was going to ask this, and I didn't even think of an answer myself. <laughs> when I think about this book, what do I... Well, I'm sorry, this is an obvious answer. It's a monster donut. Oh. <laughs> How silly of me. Uh... Of course. It's a monster donut, everybody. Um, um, thanks for no, listening. I think... <laughs> For me, the scene, when I think of this book that I always remember, is the siren scene. So I feel like maybe just the image of the cut ropes. That's, that's oh, what I picture. Okay. That's a, a good symbol of that moment. I was trying to think of a, a symbol for that moment because that's the exact same moment that I was going to say. Mm-hmm. And what I came up with was the air bubble that they hang out in underwater. But I don't know how you would, like, <laughs> paint that onto a bead. <laughs> I mean, a bubble. Just a bubble. And then I think the other big moment is Thalia coming back. So I don't... Right. I was going to say um, the sarcophagus. Mm. Well, that's a different But I might hang on to that one. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we are going to be reading The Diary of Luke Castellan from The Demigod Diaries, which I'm actually assuming a couple people listening probably haven't read. Uh, I know Emily hasn't read it, so we'll be getting her first reaction next episode. Which uh, is going to be fun. In the meantime, if you have any questions for us to answer or your own analyses that you want to add, um, you can email us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. Or find us at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you'd like to see the drawings that I made as we were talking today, which I we didn't mention this time, <laughs> you can find those on all of that social media as well as on my YouTube channel, um, which is where I'll post the time lapse, um, which is Fojoco, P H O J O C O. I think that's it. <laughs>
Uh, if you haven't read Luke's diary, go read it. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>